Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After Kenya shook off British rule in the 1960s, land was divided largely among the politically connected. With a newly devolved government, there's a push toward restitution of land to the dispossessed. But that, too, looks more political than principled. And our correspondent goes along to witness some hardcore training in dealing with knife attacks, active shooters, even cybersecurity and first aid. It's not education for law enforcement. It's for Chinese students about to head to the West. First up, though. This morning, Britain's Conservative Party celebrates a dramatic election victory in which it won parliamentary seats all over the country. The Tories won in places that have been in the hands of the opposition Labour Party for generations. I will work with everyone in the town to make it a world-class place. Like Grimsby, which elected its first Conservative Member of Parliament since the Second World War, Leah Nietzsche. Well, the, yeah, I mean, it's epic. It's, we've made history, haven't we? She told The Economist she won because her party had a clear pro-Brexit message. I, don't, I think people, people, it was a high Brexit voting area. People wanted that honoured. I've promised that I'm going to honour that, and I think that's important. Even in places where most people wanted to remain in the European Union, many voters picked Conservative candidates. Rob, Dominic Rennie, 31,000. <laughs> In 2016, the constituency of Isher and Walton voted to remain in the EU, but last night it re-elected hard Brexiteer Dominic Robb. I said, we've got a deal, let's get it sorted. That allays the fears people have of no deal. We can't, it's not right to scrap the referendum. The triumphant Tory leader Boris Johnson hailed his new mandate. And uh, with this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? We've been paying attention. Uh, Meanwhile, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn said his party's policies had been ignored in an election that became about one issue. Brexit has so polarised and and divided debate in this country, it has overridden so much of a normal political debate. Yet plenty of Labour Party members blamed Mr Corbyn's leadership for their dramatic defeat. And the Liberal Democrats, a more centrist party that had promised to undo Brexit, lost nearly half their seats, including that of their leader, Joe Swinson. For millions of people in our country, these results will bring dread and dismay, and people are looking for hope. Her party now holds just 11 of the 650 parliamentary seats. In winning this election, we have won votes and the trust of people who have never voted 
Conservative before. Well, this is a much bigger majority than almost anybody had expected. Before the results came out, there was real doubt about whether the Tories were going to get a majority at all. Some of the polls suggested that they could be heading for a hung parliament. Tom Wainwright is our Britain editor. And so to end up with a majority of this size, which is the biggest Tory majority since Margaret Thatcher and what looks like the worst Labour performance since 1935 is a, a huge deal. So what does this thumping majority mean for what the Tories can do now and, and what's next for Britain? We can now clearly say Brexit is going to happen. Britain will leave the EU next month by the end of January. The second thing is something that is going on under the surface of British politics and, and that's that the result of this election really suggests that a, a transformation has happened in the way in which voters align themselves. Because if you look at the seats that the Tories have won, there are some astonishing Tory gains in there, places like Grimsby, places like Wrexham, which Labour has held for 84 years, I think. These places turning Tory, and and not just marginally, in some cases, uh, formerly uh, Labour strongholds have turned into actually what look like now quite safe Tory seats. So big, big changes going on. So what was it that made the Tories so popular in the end, do you think? Well, I think a big part of it actually is is not so much the Tories being very popular as Labour being even more unpopular. Mm-hmm. It's important to remind people going into this that Boris Johnson was leading uh, the least popular new government on record. Uh, but fortunately for him, he was up against Jeremy Corbyn, who was the least popular leader of the opposition uh, since polling began. And so I think this was really an election in which people were deciding which of the options before them they they disliked less. And it seems that in the end, people decided that Labour's offering was was the worst of the two. But what was it that Mr. Johnson offered that convinced people he was the, the lesser of the evils? Well, I think Boris Johnson learned from some of the mistakes that Theresa May made uh, in the election uh, only two years ago, because after all, her strategy was quite similar. She similarly tried to go after Brexit voters in the North and in the Midlands, and for her, it, it completely flopped. And I think Johnson looked at May's approach and saw that her problem was, well, she had two problems. She, her media appearances were pretty bad and his solution was to dodge them as much as he could. He, he avoided the cameras whenever possible during the campaign. And her other big problem was the manifesto, which contained a, a very unpopular uh, policy on paying for social care for the elderly. And Johnson's solution to this was to release a manifesto which had almost no policies in whatsoever. And so his campaign was a very disciplined one which just endlessly rammed home the slogan that he would get Brexit done. And that proved a very popular slogan. And I think increasingly, even quite a lot of people who voted Remain quite like the idea of the whole thing just being over and done with so we can get on with other stuff. Under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party has championed some pretty hard-left policies. Now that it's been so humbled, do you think the party will shift away from those? Well, the Labour Party is going to change in the sense that Jeremy Corbyn has already said that he won't contest the next election. But he's also said that he's going to stay on during the process of choosing the new leader. And there are worries among some people within Labour that this means that it's going to be more of the same. It seems reasonably clear that following the party's worst performance since 1935, they need to do something quite drastically different. But the signs seem to be that Corbyn and people around him are going to try to pick a successor who has many of the same ideas. If this was an unpalatable choice between a hard-left Labour and the Conservative government that had already proved uninspiring, there was ostensibly a middle ground here in the form of the, the Liberal Democrats. Why didn't they do better? The Lib Dems did do extremely badly. I mean, even their leader, Jo Swinton, lost her own seat. I think there are two things going on there. One is that they went for this 
policy of not just holding a second referendum on Brexit, but just unilaterally revoking Article 50, i.e. cancelling Brexit. And I think a lot of people thought that just wasn't on. You know, even moderate Remainers thought that actually you can't just cancel something that millions of people have voted for. You know, you, you would have to have a second vote. And I think the other problem was that although people have made the point that Labour and the Tories are both extreme options in this election, and, and that makes it sound as though a sort of moderate centrist option like the Lib Dems ought to be quite well placed. In fact, you can sometimes have the opposite effect. When you've got one extreme option, let's say you've got Jeremy Corbyn promising uh, to kind of revamp the whole economy on socialist lines, a lot of people think, you know, to, to stop him, we, we must stop him at all costs, even if that means voting Tory. And on the other hand, you've got Boris Johnson promising this kind of ultra hard Brexit. And so you have people saying, well, you know, we've got to stop him, even if that means voting for Jeremy Corbyn. Well, there's one wrinkle here that the result was not entirely positive for Mr. Johnson in Scotland. What is it that happened there? Well, Scotland was one place where the Tories didn't do well. They lost seats there to the Scottish National Party. The SNP are now in a really commanding position in Scotland. And Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the party, is going to treat this as a mandate to request another referendum on Scottish independence. Now, Boris Johnson has already said that he won't permit one of those, and technically it does require his permission. But in 2021, we're going to see the SNP do probably very well in elections to the Scottish Parliament. And so following these two successive elections in which the party's done extremely well, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for Westminster to say no to an independence referendum, especially once Brexit has happened, because they were told at the time of the last independence referendum that this would be the last one for a generation unless there was some material change in the relationship between Scotland and England. And I think that the uh, the Brexit referendum and, and Brexit itself probably do represent such a material change. So Brexit is now all but certain to happen on January 31st. What what do you see for the rest of 2020? The main thing to watch out for in 2020 is the fact that Boris Johnson is not just going to get Brexit done, as he promised. Brexit will officially happen at the end of January, but that's not the end of it by any means. That's just the beginning, really, because because after that comes the really difficult bit, which is negotiating the future relationship. And that, Boris Johnson has said, he will complete by the end of the year. And very, very few experts think that that's possible. Doing a comprehensive trade agreement with the European Union in less than 12 months uh, is something that most people don't see as realistic. And so it looks as if, if he wants to avoid a a no-deal exit, he's going to have to break his promise and request an extension of that transition period that Britain is in. And that's going to come as a a bit of a shock to the people who voted for him on the promise of getting Brexit done. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. For more news and analysis on these results, listen to The Economist Asks, our weekly interview show. Later on today, my colleague Anne McElvoy will be reporting straight from Westminster on what the results mean for Britain, Brexit and beyond. The Economist Asks is available wherever you get your podcasts. 
now it only remains for me to present to you, Mr. Prime Minister, these constitutional instruments which establish Kenya's independence. In 1963, British rule over Kenya ended. In the years before, colonists had cheated people out of choice land. Although that property was redistributed among the Kenyan people, much of it went to those with political connections. More than half a century on, a push is growing to reclaim land that many consider to be their ancestral right. When decolonization happened, mainly in the 1960s, and then the advent of black majority rule in southern Africa took place. Africans were jubilant about achieving political independence. However, there have been many who say that they never achieved economic independence, and a lot of that has got to do with grievances over land. Adrian Blomfield writes for The Economist from Kenya. In southern Africa, for a long time, after the end of white majority rule in South Africa and Zimbabwe, uh, the whites still controlled most of the fertile farming land. In East Africa, a lot of people who say they lost their ancestral land feel that they never got it back, even though it was a slightly different picture in places like Kenya, where the whites largely moved off the land. One white farmer had 2,000 acres here. Now, 11,000 acres supports some 450 African farmers. So tell me about the, the situation in Kenya more specifically, how, kind of how things have played out um, since the, the colonists departed. So essentially what happened in 1963 is that unlike in Zimbabwe, most of the whites agreed to leave their farms. A fund was set up by the departing British um, in order to compensate the white farmers. And the idea was that the land would be given to landless black Kenyans. Some of them did indeed benefit. The issue is that an awful lot of land ended up in the hands of politicians and the political elite. And so those issues have continued to fester since independence until the present day. And so if that's been a sore point since the decolonization, how, how has that manifest itself more recently? I think you need to divide this into two different areas. You've got resentment at big landowners. That includes politicians and that includes multinational companies to a certain extent. Lots of people in Kenya know that the Kenyatta family, which is the ruling family at the moment, the first president, Jomo Kenyatta, came to power in 1963. He died in 1978. His son, Uhuru Kenyatta, is the president and it is widely said that the Kenyatta family are the biggest landowners in the country. Other former presidents also said to have very large amounts of land. But issues over land have manifested themselves in a different, uh, different way since the 1980s. You've had land-related ethnic clashes as tribal groups of smallholders have faced off against each other, often manipulated by politicians, egged on by politicians um, who uh, know that this is a touchstone issue. That's led to the deaths of thousands of people. However... The anger at the moment and the campaigning at the moment for restitution of this land is being targeted more at multinational companies. Now, multinational companies do not own an awful lot of land. This is just a few counties, but in key sectors like tea. And so what we're seeing in the tea growing highlands, you've got politicians who are using 
historic grievances over land and how it was distributed in colonial times to make life difficult for farmers. We've seen threats of land invasion, but more at the moment it's been threats and pressure to try and get these uh, multinational firms to give up a large amount of their land to the local ethnic groups, the tribes who say, this was our ancestral land. These campaigns are being fought in different ways. So why is this becoming more of an issue now? Why this is becoming more of an issue now is that in 2010, Kenya adopted a devolved constitution. That hands significant powers to 47 newly created counties and their governors, who are now seeking to make land and historic land and justice an issue. They're pointing also to another constitutional innovation, the National Land Commission, which has a committee that looks at the way uh, land was appropriated in colonial times. What are these sort of newly empowered governors doing and and the commission doing to try to, to redress the balance? One of the things that they're looking at is that the constitution also changed land tenure rules. So foreigners who owned agricultural land in the past, owned it under a 999-year lease. The constitution lops off a nine. So the farms are now owned under a 99-year lease. The central government people I've spoken to says that 99-year lease begins in 2010, so it still has a long time to run. Some of the governors are saying those leases are already up because they were granted in the 1920s or before, and therefore that land must now be returned to the ethnic group, to the tribe that owned the land, that was dispossessed of the land under colonial rules. The key rulings made by the National Land Commission are that the land was illegally or improperly acquired during colonial times by the British. And it also says that land should be ultimately surrendered to the tribes from which it was taken, and that the tea companies that own the land should pay back the illegally acquired profits going back as far as 1902. The governor in Kiricho estimates that could be as much as $20 billion. And so this is principally, exclusively about uh, big landowners that, that make tea? No, it's not. It's particularly relevant for tea because you have quite a few multinational companies that grow tea. But this is also being targeted at multinational companies operating in other areas. So, for example, you've got Del Monte, Kenya, which has a large pineapple plantation in another part of Kenya. Governors there have demanded that Del Monte surrender large chunks of its land over those same leasehold claims. They say that that land was illegally acquired. What about the the, the national government more broadly, especially given that the president is is one of the big landowners here? Well, indeed, I think uh, President Kenyatta finds himself in something of a bind. He's worried that the people's anger, which at the moment is being directed at foreign companies, could one day be turned to his own family, to other members of the Kenyan political elite. They've always been worried about that. He's largely remained silent. What is also happening is that the multinationals and big tea growers have gone to court seeking judicial review of the Kenya Land Commission's ruling on this. So this matter is not some governors. So one governor, Governor Paul Chepkwani of Kiricho, told me that his people were becoming so fed up they weren't really willing to let the matter drag on in the courts and they may mount Zimbabwe-style land invasions of their own. And what a lot of people in the tea sector 
are saying is that the governors who are doing this are really doing it in order to line their own pockets. They point to Zimbabwe, where after land reform under Robert Mugabe, a lot of land ended up not going to the poor and the dispossessed, but to politicians, and many worry that that will happen in Kenya as well. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Forty years ago, China's then-leader Deng Xiaoping told the American diplomat Henry Kissinger there's nothing very frightening about education in the West. His words signaled a dramatic opening. Chinese students would at last be allowed to study in countries that were enemies of communism. Today, hundreds of thousands of them head abroad every year. Last year, nearly two-thirds of a million, mostly to Western countries. Many, however, are more apprehensive than Deng suggested they should be, but not for ideological reasons. It was Chinese students who were preparing to go abroad to study and who were worried about their personal safety. They had just received four days of training on security, safety, terrorism prevention, cyber safety, sexual harassment training, first aid training. Ted Plafker writes about China for The Economist and is based in Beijing. So after four days of training, the students participated in a graduation ceremony and they were congratulated for having endured a very difficult and arduous four days of training. Four days ago, I saw you as 100 individuals. And over the last four days, you learned amazing skills, how to defend yourself, how to give first aid and receive first aid, how to speak with a sign. I saw the last full day of training where they had gone through drills. I watched commandos in camouflage abseiling down buildings. I watched them fend off knife attackers, do marching drills and first aid training and emergency training to cope with situations that they might encounter abroad. Why is it then that these students are being taught this this wide array of, uh, of skills or, or preparedness? They hear a lot about the outside world and how dangerous it can be. Some of that includes news reports about life in America and the frequency of active shooter situations and gun attacks, which are featured very prominently in Chinese media. And it it might have an outsized prominence in their thinking compared to the likelihood that they will actually face such a scenario. But it's something that's on their minds and on the minds of parents who put their children in these security training classes. I spoke to one student whose mother was standing nearby who said that the main thing on her mind was the fact that she hears all the time about gun violence in America and she's very worried about sending her kid off and hopes that some training about how to handle such a scenario might might save his life someday. And so what, what does the, the, the training look like? Is this, is this sort of classroom-based learning? Some of it is classroom-based, but a lot of it is outdoor field training. The students are set up outside and all of a sudden a gunman comes bursting in or a knife-wielding attacker comes bursting in. And they are taught how to respond to such situations, how to deal with law enforcement, how to calm situations down. They are taught a variety of techniques for dealing with emergency situations in the moment. They're taught how to handle first aid situations after the fact. I mean, is there a possibility here that this is an overreaction, that this training that's being offered, that's being sold, is exploiting overblown fears? 
to some extent. On the other hand, the reports they see are not fake. Gun violence in the U.S. especially is a big problem. It's true. They see it reported. It may be emphasized more in Chinese media, but it's not fake media, and they see that it happens and they worry about it. Wang Xuejun, the founder of the company and a former commando in the Chinese Ministry of Public Security who saw serious action in Haiti and other places, tells his students that might come in handy in the worst-case scenario while they're abroad, but it also might come in handy after they get back home. Things can happen wherever they are, including back in China, even if they feel safer there, and that this training will put them in good stead to handle difficult situations wherever they come up. Ted, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.